Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. We've got through to the end of the week. It's Friday. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode, a really fascinating chat with Fiona Hill. No, not the Theresa May uh, Chief of Staff, uh, but Fiona Hill, who actually grew up in the northeast of England, but left the northeast, in fact, left the UK to pursue her career as an expert in Russia. Ended up working for not one, not two, but three presidents in the White House. She reflects on class in Britain and global politics and tells us what it was really like working for George W. Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So that's coming up in just a sec. Uh, In a moment, we'll have our columnist uh, panel. But first, let's take a look at what we learned this week. Yes, all eyes on Rishi Sunak, the low-tax, low-spend Chancellor, as he hiked tax and spending and then tried his hand at stand-up. And I cannot wait, Madam Deputy Speaker, for the opposition to accuse me tomorrow of beer-barrel politics. Yeah, that all went down as well as his visit to Bury. The levelling-up fund bids like Burnley Market, world-famous Burnley Market, benefiting... Sorry, you're in Bury, Chancellor. World-famous Burnley market. Still, uh, he also has a rival in the vanity stakes. It was revealed that in just six weeks, official government photographers have taken 267 pictures of Liz Truss. And there were only 104 pictures of everyone else in the Cabinet put together. That is a disgrace. It is indeed. Labour did their bit for the environment by recycling their old leader. I I just want to reassure both sides of the House, it's one time only that I'm back. (laughs) Yes, Ed Miliband stood in at PMQs after Keir Starmer tested positive, which is something he's yet to do in the polls or focus groups. It meant that it fell to the shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves to respond to the budget. It's like one of those pickpocketing operations that you see in crowded places. All the while, the Chancellor dips his hand in their pocket until you walk away and find that your purse has been lifted. Although she seems to be watching old William Hague videos. He is the pickpocket Chancellor who shakes your hand with a smile after he has stealthily removed your wallet. Recycling leaders, recycling jokes, still it's all good ahead of the COP26 talks. Uh, climate campaigners aren't confident, but Boris Johnson says it's touch and go. And it's, it's touch and go. And that's his approach to any large rooms full of strangers. And that is what we learned this week. So that's what we learned this week. Now it's time for our columnist panel. It's Friday, so it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. 
Now, when we were doing the sort of uh, aren't we doing very well chat on the show yesterday, we did a little montage of everything. I, 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 it occurred to me again, we still don't have a portmanteau name for you uh, to go with Libby Rachie, Finkelfitch, Crampon and Night at the Marriott. But uh, I put out an appeal this morning. Somebody's not put their name on this, uh, but they've come up with a suggestion. Respect the How do you feel about being Mel and Jim? Mel, say it again. Mel and Jim, because this is Mel and Kim. And we can play this song every Friday. At the risk of sounding like a High Court judge, Matt, the cultural reference is lost on me. Perfect. Even better. Even better. It's totally lost on me too. Perfect. Right, that's it. It's done. You're now Mel and Jim. Perfect. James, James, does anyone ever call you Jim? Uh, I've never really been a Jim, I must admit. Good, perfect. I now, I'm now going to impose this on you against your will. Right, uh, let's get on with the uh, let's get on with the business of the day. Uh, and um, uh, your column in the Times today, James, Sunak pushes big state Toryism to its limit, and you've been trying to unpick exactly what. What, what does it mean to be a Conservative Chancellor in uh, 2021? Yeah, I think this is, I think the whole, the, the paration at the end of the budget saying, look, that he wanted taxes to be coming down rather that by the end of this parliament, that there are limits to what the state can do, is, I think, essentially him saying, look, you know, this is the limit of how, how big you can grow the state, how high you can raise a tax burden without beginning to kind of damage growth and, you know, ultimately in the long term, the, the Tories' political prospects. And I think this is the challenge for the Tories now is that, you know, that, yes, they announced lots of spending uh, on Wednesday, but there's going to be demands for more spending. You know, they've unfrozen public sector pay, for example, but they haven't said how much it will go up by. But if they are going to have any chance of cutting taxes before the next election, then they are going to have to stick really rigorously to these spending limits and make tough choices that they haven't shown much of an appetite for in recent years. I think it's one of those things where the, the Tory flesh, uh, the Tory spirit might be willing, but the flesh might be weak. <laughs> I suppose the, the big tension within the Conservative Party is that deep down, lots of Conservative MPs don't like this instinctively and ideologically. But electorally, it's a slightly different matter. Uh, I think there is some truth to that. But I also think that it is it would be dangerous for the Tory party to go into the next election having raised personal taxes and not set about um, bringing them down again at all. I also think there's a question which is, you know, at some point, if you if you increase the amount of money going into something, radically you know that money won't get spent in the most efficient way possible and so i think the kind of real question is you know what reform goes alongside all this extra cash um how have you uh viewed the um the budget from scotland melanie how's it how's it gone down there how's rishi sunak seen this sort of new brand of conservatism i think with the usual um cynicism with which <laughs> with <laughs> with with which the Scots tend to view um, what's happening. But I, I, do you know, from this distance, I, I'm i inclined to think that, that there's, isn't this just a little bit more of um, highlighting the tension between number number 10 and number 11? And I, I mean, Johnson is still trying to do his populist, non-traditionalist, 
Toryism, non-traditional Tory stuff, but it's designed to get him re-elected. I mean, isn't that really what he is? He's trying to do. And Sunak, I get the feeling that Sunak is 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 trying to steer a course um, that could lead to him getting elected. And it's it's <laughs> it's. it's I, do you know it's it's the psychodrama that really interests me between these two men because uh, you know w- one's very sensible. And the other one is just, it's all about him. That's my, that's my gut reaction. James, you, <clears throat> as you write in your comments there, you've known Richie Sunak for a long time. What is his actual core belief about, you know, the role of the state and, you know, what, what it means to be a Conservative Chancellor? So I think he thinks the kind of key Tory value, as he, as he himself said at, at Tory conference, you know, is fiscal responsibility. He ultimately thinks that, you know, that, and, and he, he is an instinctively quite a cautious character. And I think he, he is uncomfortable with, um, hoping that everything is going to be all right on the night. Um, you know, I think he is, you know, more worried about inflation than some other people in the government. Um, because obviously that, that increases the cost of service in the government debt because interest rates go up and the UK's inflation linked debt and the like. And so I, I think he, he is, and I think also what he was saying at the end of the speech was kind of was a kind of look, you know government can't do everything, and I think that I think the the kind of challenge is if you think back historically, every time the state has mobilised on the scale like it did for COVID, I think the only two examples previous examples I can think of uh, in in recent history are World War One and World War Two. The state afterwards was much bigger. Um, government did a lot more, and I think he doesn't want the state to become a lot bigger as a result of COVID. I don't think he, you know, I think that that is not what he thinks should happen. I think he, he thinks that, you know, if the state were to become, you know, if the state was not to kind of shrink back substantially from the size it grew to during COVID, then that, that would, that, that, that is ultimately unaffordable in the long term. Uh, uh, Melanie, if you, do you think, I mean, Boris Johnson, I'm not sure, is a hugely popular figure in Scotland. Would the Conservatives have more traction in Scotland were Rishi Sunak leader? Yeah, I think they would. Yeah, I do think uh, I think Boris Johnson's fairly toxic up here. That uh, that sort of uh, the Scots the Scots like somebody who's sort of quietly businesslike, and who who doesn't who doesn't um, you know do the 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 old Etonian stuff and and sort of uh, be a bit be a bit of a of, of a of a loud and loud and colourful. They they really that's not really their thing, and uh, yeah, I think Sunak is is more their type of sort of sort of quiet get on with it. Um, but that yeah, I think everything's going to be scuppered. From my view, isn't everything going to be scuppered scuppered by inflation and interest rates? Isn't this going to stop all the kind of strategic positioning that's going on at the moment? I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, um, James? Is that with the OBR, what what goes up can come also, also come down, or the other way round? Did the he he had a bit of a war chest as a result of uh, better than expected growth forecast, but the opposite could happen too. And that if it, yeah. if this inflation really does kick in and leads to interest rate rises, then all bets are off. 
Yeah, and I mean, the, I mean, the, the challenge for um, the, about inflation is, you know, no single national government can deal with it. You know, you look at what the, the European Central Bank said yesterday about how they thought inflation was going to be longer lasting than they'd expected. You, you look at what's going on in the US, where you know you've got these massive supply chain shortages. You know, huge numbers of ships waiting to get into those California ports, but that is that is contributing to push up inflation there too. You've got kind of globally high energy prices. You know, this is the big danger. Um, governing at a time of inflation is, is, is very, very hard. Just look at how politically volatile Britain was in the 70s. Now, I don't think we're heading for kind of 70s levels of inflation. But I do. But, you know, but I think there, I think but I think in, but if you look at what the, I think inside government now, what people think by far the biggest risk to the economy, and I think also the biggest political risk factor is inflation. Well, we'll, see, well, we'll brace ourselves and see how that, uh, that pans out. Um, really interesting stories made several of the front pages today about prescribing e-cigarettes um, uh, on the NHS. So that, this is actually strictly speaking, this is only going to be in England, uh, to help smokers quit. Um, uh, many of you picked this out as a, as a story of it. What do you make of this? Well, I, I wondered if, it, 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 I mean, I... My my initial reaction is that I, I bet the Scots would be a bit jealous because they'll have loved to have done this first because <laughs> they like to take, you know, the, 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 they up here, they, they, they really do like to take the high ground regarding sort of banning smoking and, uh, you know, raising minimum alcohol uh, prices and that sort of thing. But it, it it's a great initiative. Um, apparently, the cost of vaping is about £300 a year and the cost of 20 a day is, is uh, sort of, £3,700 a year. So, you know, when you compare that to the cost of of, of the health problems that um, cigarettes bring and what the state will end up paying looking after uh, smokers uh, towards the end of their lives, then, you know, it's it's, it's a no-brainer. Um, but I, I actually interested, have either of you two, do either of you two smoke or have you ever smoked? No, beyond, beyond sort of some teenage, or, you know, spluttering. Uh, it never really, it never really caught me. What about you, Joe? Uh, I, I think I've smoked about probably kind of less than a packet in my entire life. Yeah. So you you still smoke? No, no, God, no. Oh, no. oh, I, oh, in your whole life. Oh, I see. Sorry, yeah. I thought you. No, no, total. Twenty a day. Yeah. You've got through less than a packet while we've been talking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, I just wonder. I, I, to me, it's it's curious. I mean, I'm not I'm not a smoker either, and. uh I just wondered how good it, how easy it is to break the habit with, um, with the, using these vaping. You know, I've heard from friends anecdotally, it doesn't really help that much, but I may be wrong. Well, I mean, I suppose if, uh, but there's a sort of broader question, isn't there? On the one hand, you can see, well, the NHS, you know, smoking is clear, clearly causes massive health problems and the NHS have to pick up the tab for that. So if you can preempt that with some, you know, preventative action, i.e. getting people to vape rather than smoke, then ultimately there's an economic benefit as well as a health benefit. But, you know, there's there could be an economic benefit to giving everyone a free gym membership and then we'd all be a bit fitter and healthier. So where you draw that line between, I suppose, James, to some extent, it goes back to sort of conservative ideology of personal responsibility versus state intervention. Yeah, I, I must admit, my initial reaction when I saw um, the press release drop last night was, was slightly kind of grumpy curmudgeon. Um, you know, no wonder we're spending so much on, uh, you know, uh, if they, and, and I think it is, 
I think it is difficult to work out how you do this. I think I think there is I think there is a there is a broader challenge, which is one of the things that COVID has realised is you know, we the the, the 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 as a population we are not healthy enough, right? That that we are we are too fat. Um, in in principally that is the biggest problem. And then you know what is the role for the state in trying to to tackle that? And I mean that is I mean that is a kind of big kind of philosophical question uh I, i'm kind of instinctively uncomfortable with bans and minimum alcohol prices and things like that um but i but i do think i do think one thing that we don't do very well in this country at all is teach people in school how to to cook and eat healthily yeah and i suppose I, that then become yeah that that could have an even bigger financial you know economic and health impact i thought so I mean, on that point i thought um I can I can see that James's point of view totally, but um, Savi Javid made the a very interesting point that this will help tackle the stark disparities in smoking rates. Um, you know, it's a red wall thing because it, it, it's the poorer people who smoke who suffer the most damage to their health, and and if this helps to to level up some of the awful awful health health inequalities in, in the country too, in England. Um, where the north of England, as we know, is 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 long, long way behind. You know, life life expectation ten years behind uh, those who live in Surrey or whatever. Then, then you know that that's good. That's that's where perhaps we should all be thinking about going in the long run. And if you read in James Forsyth, then of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's my chat with Fiona Hill. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now then, how does a young girl from a county Durham comprehensive end up working for three U.S. presidents? Well, Fiona Hill reveals all in a new book. There is nothing for you here, tackling class prejudice in Britain and global politics around the world. She's already made a career as an intelligent, uh, intelligence analyst and a Russia expert working under George W. Bush and Barack Obama when she then got a job to work for President Trump. She went on to be a witness in the November 29 uh, hearings during the first impeachment of Donald Trump over his dealings with Russia and Ukraine. Well, I caught up with this this week uh, to have a chat with her and started with the issue that you might be slightly juggling with as well. Of course, there's another Fiona Hill in British politics. She was one of Theresa May's fearsome chiefs of staff in the Home Office and later in Downing Street. So I asked this Fiona Hill if they'd ever been confused with each other. We have. Um, I certainly have. Um, she actually ended up at the White House uh, with Trump before I did. Because, because Theresa May is the first visitor, foreign visitor, to the White House when Trump gets elected. And the other Fiona Hill was accompanying her in her official role. And a bit later on, when I joined uh, the, the Trump National Security Council in um, sort of March, April of 2017, they were actually finally writing up the minutes from that uh, meeting. And they said, oh, well, you were there. 
you know, your name is on the list here. You can, you know, relate. I was like, I wasn't there. That wasn't me. It was the other Fiona Hill. But maybe I could call her and find out what was said. <laughs> they didn't have very good note taking from then in, the, in those sort of early days. Yeah. So tell you what, let's go right back to the beginning then, where your book starts. And it's about, it's you growing up in uh, County Durham. Paint a picture for us of, of what it was like growing up uh, then. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the period, very sadly, of the decline of all the industry in the northeast of England. I mean, the northeast was the big powerhouse, coal mining and shipbuilding and steelworks and heavy industry. Pretty much everybody in the northeast, one way or another, worked for one of the, the big uh, the big industries. When I come along in the mid-1960s, it's that whole period where everything's starting to close down, particularly the coal mines. And my dad uh, was a coal miner, along with um, everybody in his family. I mean, he's multiple generations of coal miners in County Durham because coal mining goes so far back. But basically, all of this, you know, generation of investment in coal mines and in the kind of, you know, the heavy industry, uh, it's at the end. My dad tries to find, you know, multiple other jobs, uh, you know, kind of nothing really works. He ends up working in the local hospital in, in Bishop Auckland. And so I'm growing up in this whole environment where everybody's dad's losing their job. And although, you know, everybody else around me is in the same boat, you start to kind of quickly flew into the fact that you're deprived, you know, that there's not a lot going on and, you know, everything is closing down and there's really not very much to do in the town. The town is really down on its luck. We used to spend a lot of time sitting around on a white barrier, you know, between the old part of the metal barrier between the white old part of the town and the new part of the town, you know, just sort of contemplating our very limited prospects. And you ended up getting an interview. You got encouraged to apply to Oxford. You got an interview at Oxford, but that didn't go brilliantly well. No, it didn't. I mean, I have to make the comparison with Billy Elliot, uh, you know, which um, was set at the same time, actually, 1983-84, you know, around the time of the miners' strike. And Billy Elliot, of course, wants to be a ballet dancer and goes off down to the Royal Ballet, you know, kind of uh, company and for an audition. And, you know, I'm going to Oxford at the same time with no preparation whatsoever. I think, you know, in the 1980s, when there was the entrance exam to Oxford, there was always an expectation, particularly in private schools or schools that had been grammar schools, that you would have a lot of preparation for this. My school had no idea. They just wanted somebody to try. So I had no clue before I um, did the um, entrance exam about what that would be like. And the interview, we weren't prepared for it. Nobody really knew from my kind of background what that would entail. And it didn't go well at all because, you know, I, I, I met with some other girls at Hartford College that had given me the opportunity for an interview and they immediately start making fun of me just like out of the scene of Billy Elliot. What I was wearing, the way that I sounded, pretending they couldn't understand me. One girl happened to actually be from County Durham and I'd have met on a school exchange, even volunteered to interpret for me, which, you know, felt like a bit of a slap in the face. And then I had this whole pratfall over someone's foot. You know, I was convinced they'd stuck it out, but, you know, maybe they'd have just been sticking out and I hadn't seen it because I was by this time so you know, thrown off my game that, you know, I I didn't even know where I was and who I was and what I was doing. And I sort of fall into the door when my name's called, busting my nose, have a nosebleed. And I'm kind of trying to get out of my, the sleeve of my cardigan that my grandma had bought me, a, a handkerchief that she'd stuffed up it just in case, you know, and I'm, I'm walking into my interview with my nose bleeding, apologising to the, to the professor who's going to interview me. It, it just did not go well. So you ended up at St Andrews. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> after that. And actually, the professor who um, interviewed me for Oxford suggested that. He actually said, look, I don't think that this is really going to be for you. And I think you'd be better off going somewhere where you really, you know, kind of would flourish and, and where you could do the subjects you were interested in. Because actually, I wasn't going to be able to do Russian at Oxford. 
So if I had gone to Oxford, we wouldn't be talking today because I'd have probably gone off and done something completely different. We'll, we'll come on to Russia and what happened in your um, career later. Picture your painting of what those parts of the country are like, Bishop Auckland, the northeast of England. They, this is the Red Wall. This is the area that went conservative at the 2019 election, even though the seeds of the, not destruction, but the, seed, the seeds of the deindustrialization, a lot of the right. social problems, the economic problems, were sown by the conservative government of Margaret Thatcher. So I just wonder how, and I know obviously you've been sort of watching most of this sort of being played out from uh, America now, but what have you made of seeing those parts of the country turning to the party that, you know, lots of people would, would, have, would have pointed the finger at? How do you how do you explain all of that? Well, I think part of it is because that's um, almost seems like the distant past to people, oh. you know, which is kind of a, a weird thing to say, because for people like me, of course, that was kind of you know very much uh, part of the world that I was shaped by. So a lot of that kind of legacy of the past is gone. You know, so people, it's not there kind of ever present in their memories. But I think also what it is really about is dashed expectations over and over again after the Thatcher period onwards. And of course, a lot of the blame being put on Europe and Brussels, uh, you know, that we saw manifest itself during all the debates about uh, Brexit, that there was a real kind of desire for uh, somebody to come actually pay attention finally after all of this time. Also, recognition that previous Labour governments, even when they'd been in power, had done very little to address things. So I think people were taking a gamble. Okay, you know, first of all, we were told it was Europe uh, that was uh, basically extracting resources, and they weren't getting coming back to uh, to the north. Good. Okay, we'll get rid of that. And now, you know, if you guys are going to be in power and you're sort of saying that you're going to pay attention to us, then we'll give you our votes and let's sort of see what happens. I mean, that's you know, obviously putting it in abstract. Where, but many of my family, that's how they were thinking. They were thinking, okay, all right then. I mean, Labour hasn't done very much for us. They, they had the feeling that, particularly since somebody like Derek Foster, that subsequent Labour MPs were more interested in playing politics back in London and not really that interested in really doing anything for the North. They often weren't from the uh, locality. So let's give these guys a, a chance. And there's also the kind of the cultural values issue as well that people are starting to perceive just like they have with the democrats in the united states that the labor party is really the party of as one of my relatives said of islington you know basically the people who are highly educated are all from london and they don't know anything about us up north and i suppose it's that thing isn't it the, the labor party always assumed they'd got those in the bag so if there was gains to be made electorally they had to be in the south where they used to be very weak and actually you know they're in the bag until until they're not. And do you think there are, and I think you touched on this in the book, sort of drawing those parallels between what happened in the north of England with what happened in the Rust Belt in the United States and the way that Trump managed to tap into that, and even to some extent maybe what happened in Russia too in Putin's ability to to appeal to, to Russians in areas which had been overlooked before? Is that is that a fair, or is that being a bit too Yeah, no, it's definitely that. Because if you actually, I mean, obviously I've spent... Um, all of my academic and um, professional life looking at Russia, and I've done a lot on, of work on you know, these sort of socioeconomic dynamics that propel Putin. You see that Putin's base is also in the old industrial heartlands of, of Russia. It's not in the big cities, the Islington equivalents, you know, kind of, of of Russia, where you know, kind of Putin is is not uh, you know revered. In fact, you know, in Moscow and even in his own hometown of St. Petersburg, people tend to vote against him rather than for him because they see him as someone who's Playing to this kind of base, um, it's you know the uneducated or the people who've kind of lost their jobs or the people who are in the public sector in Russia. About sixty percent of the Russian workforce is in the public sector. And then we know, you know, from uh, twenty sixteen again in twenty twenty, that Trump gets most of his votes. 
you know, from the people who have not got higher education, uh, rural areas, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And then the big kind of swathe of the uh, American heartland in the south, as well as in the um, uh, Midwest and the old industrial uh, regions, and a lot less on the coast and in the, you know, the larger urban areas that have really kind of moved into the new economy. So you can see those parallels very vividly. This is the time scales are sometimes different. Matt Jolly on Times Radio speaking to Fiona Hill, the Russian intelligence analyst who was born and grew up in the northeast of England in the 70s and 80s, studied Russian at St Andrews University in Scotland, but a job application to work for the British Foreign Office got lost down the back of a radiator and she ended up heading across the Atlantic, studying at Harvard and becoming such an expert in Russia. She worked as an intelligence analyst for both George W. Bush and Barack Obama in the White House, and more recently as Senior Director at the National Security Council on Europe and Russia for President Donald Trump. So, Fiona, of those three presidents, how do they compare as bosses? Oh, totally different, as you can imagine. Trump never paid any attention to me at all while I was there, so that was kind of quite different. And what, why um, do you think that was? Because he wasn't interested in Russia. Woman. He didn't know who I was. You know, he doesn't believe in expertise. You know, he's somebody who was very, you know, kind of, uh, well, he was a businessman from a family-owned firm and he frankly doesn't see what other people have got to bring to him. And he would constantly say to people, I know better than you. I know better than, you know, my generals. I know better than you guys. I've been doing this my whole life. I've been very successful. What am I going to learn from you? That's kind of part of the problem when you're on his staff. Bush and Obama are very different. So Bush um, is actually a very genial person, very interactive. And I did a lot of briefings, you know, for Bush where he would just constantly ask questions. He was very friendly. You know, I think he learned from asking a lot of questions. He would have these things called deep dives where he'd really want to get into the issues. He'd ask loads of questions and you'd have a back and forth with him. And Obama, as you know, one might imagine, very um, self-controlled, self-disciplined, somebody who reads, you know, really deeply. He would listen to your briefing, then ask a couple of judicious questions, but he wasn't really into the kind of the back and forth, certainly not the sort of small talk pat around an issue that uh, Bush was. And then Trump completely disinterested. (laughs) Oh, yeah, very different. I I can imagine. And um, Let's talk specifically about Donald Trump and this idea that at various points he was a sort of puppet of Russia, a friend of Russia. There was the famous press conference where he... He basically claimed to put more store by a cup of tea with Putin than his entire the entire U.S. intelligence establishment. What's your take on on the relationship between Donald Trump and Russia? It's really between Donald Trump and Putin. I don't think he was really all that interested in Russia. I think he had just the most superficial understanding of Russia itself and Russian history. And even of the nature of the relationship between Russia and the United States, certainly in the present time. I think he had much more of a kind of sense of, you know, the Soviet U.S. relationship, you know, during back in the Cold War. But his focus is really on Putin because he sees Putin as this strongman leader. And that's how he sees himself. So it's more about him thinking about, well, Putin's my counterpart. He's kind of the equivalent sort of CEO as it was when I had my family business. It's my job just to sit down with this guy, charm him and then, you know, do the big deal, which was really the arms control deal. And he becomes, you know, fairly obsessed about Putin, it's clear. Not not about Russia again itself, but he sees Putin as rich, very powerful, very strong, 
and very famous because everybody knows who Putin is. And that's really kind of the way that he's looking at him all the time. You've been outspoken more recently about Donald Trump's behaviour at the very end and in particular the Capitol riots. What's your assessment of Donald Trump's role in that and what he was actually trying trying to achieve? Well, look, I become much more disturbed by how things are going thanks to my experience in the first impeachment. And again, who would have thought it would be the first impeachment? And I hadn't been particularly, I hadn't really had that much time to be honestly that outspoken or critical after I'd left the NSC, because it was sort of in July, I left the week before the infamous phone call between uh, President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine, where he says, hey, do us a favour. And it's clearly when that um, phone call transcript is released in September of 2019, and then, you know, I end up having to testify in both October and November of that year that I really realise how much Donald Trump has invested in trying to privatise foreign and national security policy to get himself re-elected. And that really is a turning point for me as well as I think for many other people, because after that impeachment trial, he just doubles down and triples down. Everything is focused on staying in power no matter what. And that leads us inexorably, you know, from one event to the next, to the mob storming the Capitol building, the US Capitol building, on January 6th of this year. It's still amazing to think it was this year. It was only, you know, a few months ago. Because they're trying to stop the official handover of executive power, so stop the formal certification of the election by the vice president carrying out its constitutional role. And there's all the intent to stop that. And we now know that Trump was putting an awful lot of pressure, not just on Vice President Pence to not do his constitutional duty, but on the entire US system to stop, you know, basically the election from being certified, to claim that the election had been stolen, to delegitimize the entire process. I mean, this should be deeply disturbing for anybody in the UK and elsewhere, too, because American democracy hangs in the balance here. And so you, th- you think it was an attempt to stage a coup? Yeah, no doubt about it. It's not just the episode of January 6th which looks more like an insurrection you know, than anything else there, but it's all of the other efforts that Trump has undertaken. So it's kind of a slow rolling, slow motion, you know, kind of ongoing coup. Mm. But, you know, Trump basically starts, you know, with Zelensky and, you know, trying to get the Ukrainians to uh, basically intervene in the election by raising questions about Vice President, then former Vice President Joe Biden, his son, Hunter Biden, putting investigations into corruption by them meant to, you know, kind of spoil his candidacy. And he just kind of keeps on going from there. Every single step, there's an effort to subvert the democratic process and the election itself. What do you make of um, at various times? In fact, I think President Trump even called Boris Johnson Britain Trump at various points. This has been a term of endearment maybe on the part of Donald Trump. And then, you know, it's been used as a, a stick to, to bash Boris Johnson with. Is that a fair comparison anyway, from what you know of the two men? No, I mean, look, obviously, there's some superficial, uh, you know, um, similarities. I mean, there's the sort of bouffant hair, one more tousled than the other. You know, the hair color's not dissimilar. I mean, they're both, you know, kind of guys of the 1980s in their own way. And there's definitely a populist style that Boris Johnson has acquired. I mean, this constant sort of dumbing down of his, you know, very well-educated, you know, very accomplished self with the tousled hair, the rumpled suits, the kind of playing, the kind of the buffoon, you know, and these sort of like pratfalls, the showman that Donald Trump has as well. It's a political performance. But, you know, kind of that's not the way that Johnson is you know, running the government. Um, you know, the, the, there's a lot more to him than that. It's obviously much more studied. The most 
direct correlation is with Nigel Farage, because you know they. I mean, basically, Boris Johnson is a product of the system. Trump is from outside of the system. Boris Johnson's trying to rule through the state and through the political party system. I mean, he's very much a product of the Conservative Party. Trump wasn't even part of a party. He was registered as a Democrat, and he kind of hijacks the Republican Party. And he doesn't want to rule within the state. He's trying to dismantle the state. Now, admittedly, there's some trends in the UK in that regard as well. But it's really that the kind of movement of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, and the style of Nigel Farage that is the closest to Trump. But in fact, Trump didn't even know who Boris Johnson was before, just to be very clear. He had no prior contact with him until it was pretty much orchestrated. He even talked at different points about how lovely it would be if Nigel Farage, who was an early supporter of his and who he met with frequently, was in fact prime minister, was in fact foreign minister at different points, or ambassador to the United States. So the connection is between Farage and Trump. I wondered whether um, after spending so long working in America and America, the American political system, is it ever appealed to you or occurred to you? Would, would you work for the British government? There was a moment when um, that was a possibility I did actually get approached um, years back to interview for a position and it also didn't kind of pan out all, all sort of weird things like it happened like this you know so I did contemplate it I mean who, this was, which, who, who was that under which prime minister was that I, I, I better I better not say actually but it because it was basically the, the person who I was sort of interviewing with got removed from the position you know, would have been as a, you know, kind of a special advisor. So anyway, it was one of those moments where I thought, well, hey, you know, maybe I, I could kind of come back into, you know, some other position. I really kind of feel at this particular point that we are really hamstrung by the partisan nature of all of our politics in the UK as well as in the United States. And I think it's time for people to basically step forward from outside of politics in sort of public, private, you know, kind of crossover capacity to see if we can kind of get things done. Because I'm worrying that our party systems have become impediments, and in fact, too moving forward. There's too much of these kind of political games being played. You know, we've seen, particularly in the United States, I mean, what we might call the kind of political algorithms pushing people towards out, um, outrage, political showmanship, you know, seeing the other side as the enemy. And, and we really need to kind of bridge all of these divides. I don't think you can do it right now in a partisan fashion. So, you know, I, I do want to find roles in which I can, you know, work alongside of others to try to see if we can address some of these issues, particularly these issues of social mobility and opportunity that I write about in the book, because the United Kingdom, the United States, out of all advanced countries now, have the lowest social mobility. And that's nuts, because in both countries, you know, we, particularly since in the UK, since World War II, there was a, a real opening up of the education and social system, you know, to try to, um, you know, enable people to move, you know, from working class backgrounds up, you know, further We've done an awful lot in the UK. The UK has done an awful lot in diversification, politics and um, society, looking at race and gender. But there's been an awful lot less on geographic, you know, mobility. And I know that that's kind of been, you know, kind of rather awkward in the, in the UK in the way that's been addressed. But you don't get a lot of people from the north, no matter who they are from the north, you know, coming down into kind of politics unless they've changed their accent. You're just not seeing, you know, kind of people you know, moving in the same way. And in the United States, a lot of the mobility through education is also ground to a halt. Americans are less mobile now than at any other time since the 1940s, late 1940s. And, you know, you're getting the same problems of lack of opportunity and it's having political consequences. I mean, the very fact that people thought they had to break a red wall, you know, to the north 
in politics are the same in the U in the United States, the blue wall of Democrats shows a kind of a problem here that you had the ossification, a wall, you know, kind of basically the, you know, something that had become impermeable in, in terms of our kind of political thinking. And if it's only now that, you know, the North is voting for the Conservatives, people are actually thinking about how you level up, then we've got a problem, right? I mean, why was then, you know, the North and so many parts of Britain neglected for so long? I suppose that was that was going to be my last question, really, is whether a, a young girl with a strong accent from Bishop Auckland could now rise up through uh, the ranks to, you know, to, to be to work in the highest levels of the British government without making those changes, changing your accent and all that sort of thing. It sounds like you, you think probably not. Maybe, maybe the odd one, but, you know, kind of, I, I know still from talking to, you know, equivalents, kids my age, that they still feel that, you know, there's nothing for them here, you know, perhaps in the larger UK society, people make fun of their accent. You know, what I, I even recently, you know, somebody sort of said to me from the UK, oh, one of your accents like Vera, you know, watching Vera. And I was like, that's really rude, you know. It's just like in kind of immediately sort of pigeonholing me in, you know, some, you know, regional drama. I mean, and, and when I ended up um, being featured in a lot of the um, UK press and people were commenting on uh you know my my rise and saying well look you know kind of of course in the uk you can make it ahead look at anton deck you know the comedian <laughs> in the northeast or all of these and they would then start going down actors and actresses and people in entertainment etc and i said that's my point i didn't want to be an actor or an actress i mean a, a, or a comedian i wasn't that funny i wasn't that talented but i in, in that regard but i wanted to basically I know I didn't. I couldn't be a soccer player, and I wasn't going to be a musician. I mean, you know. The but you North want East... to be taken seriously, and there's something about regional yeah. accents where exactly. that isn't the case. People yeah, think yeah. it's amusing, right? And yeah. they go and they make comparisons immediately, rather than just kind of accepting that you can have a regional accent and somehow get ahead. Not that you have to have received pronunciation. Now, look, I think the BBC is really changing that now, and you know, local media, but not enough. And in politics, you know, how many people are there out there? There used to be in the past when, you know, through the Labour Party and the, the union movement, people moving on up. Just finally, I wanted to ask you because I heard, I think I heard Hillary Clinton being interviewed over the weekend in a separate conversation, but talking about accents. And she was saying from an American perspective, they just think all British people sound the same, that you basically sound like the Queen. So it's all, you know. That's right, exactly. So that's all and fun, is, that, yeah. is that your impression? That, is it more advantageous being British in America than it would be having a North East accent in Westminster? Oh, oh, yeah, it can be. And I mean, they even sort of said some of the critics, I mean, uh, Trump didn't like, you know, kind of my book. And I got a statement um, when I was doing the kind of the early launch things. First of all, saying I was terrible at my job, but then saying that I was a deep state stiff with a nice accent. Even then, <laughs> he had to kind of make a comment on the nice accent. And then Laura Ingram is a, you know, pretty, you know, right wing commentator on Fox News, referred to my accent as a hoity toity Prince Andrew accent, which of course would make everybody in the UK just fall about laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about laughing. I thought, Prince Andrew accent, hoity toity, what? You know. Also, of and all the people to choose, even in the people, royal family. Because he's a man as well, but of all people. And and so, but it just goes to show that people can't really discern the accent here. People would just literally say, I love your accent, it's a nice accent. But in the in the UK, as you you know, as we're saying, regional accents come with all kinds of baggage. Hmm. Often the times that people think they're amusing. And people love to imitate a Scouse accent or a Geordie accent. And people often make a comment on it, you know, where are you from then? Uh, and I find myself doing it too, but I'm genuinely interested in finding out where people are from because I really wished that the UK politics and, you know, the political life reflected more the diversity 
of Britain in all of its forms, including geographic, because I think you miss out on a lot of perspectives. I know the Foreign Office has been doing a lot of recruitment now outside of the kind of like the London and the South and not just Scotland and Wales, but trying to bring people in because they do understand it does give you a different perspective. And it gives, you know, kind of more richness. I mean, the UK is a very rich place with a lot of, you know, real, you know, regional history and, you know, different viewpoints. And we should be celebrating that as well and making people feel part of a larger polity. It's the same in the United States that as mobility uh, diminishes, that you're not getting people feel like they have any kind of sense of shared commonality uh, uh, sort of shared fellowship with other americans because everyone is living in their different silos and that is really problematic Fiona, it's been lovely to speak to you uh, and you're, you're, i know your book goes somewhere to try and address this as well there, there is nothing for you here finding opportunity in the 21st century by fiona hill is out now fiona thank you so much for joining us on times radio thanks so much matt i know and one little plug for the book there's also the audio version so if you know kind of if people like nice accents 15 and a half hours of me wittering on at them that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>